I'm Dave Monaco, the Almeyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. For February's Parish Connection episode, in celebration of Parish's 50th anniversary, we are excited to return once again to the grandest reset in our community's storied history, the grade level and campus expansion of 2002. In this phase of podcast episodes, when we've focused and pondered what kinds of resets will hold post the dreaded pandemic, it's both a pleasure to walk away from the pandemic and instead turn down memory lane to revisit the birth of Parish Episcopal School. We took up this topic in our January Parish Connection episode when we visited with former trustees Kevin Keith and Don Epperson, who helped us recall where Parish Day stood in the late 90s and which forces galvanized to supply momentum for the audacious expansion of the school. But there is still so much more to revisit. Specifically, in planning for this podcast episode, I wanted to move from the boardroom to the classroom and to the great hall and to the other spaces occupied daily by the students' employees who did the heavy lifting to bring Parish Episcopal School to life. Indeed, once community stewards like Head of School Gloria Snyder and board members and volunteers like Kevin and Don had conceived the Parish Episcopal vision, it was left to an incredibly talented, dedicated, and courageous set of employees to bring the vision to life. What were those harried months in the spring of 2002 like as plans took shape for the 3rd through 8th grade program to begin at the recently purchased and still being refurbished Midway Campus? How did the founding faculty members of the new upper school initiate the daunting process of developing an upper school program from scratch? What major obstacles and opportunities did the employees find as the former mobile Exxon facility was converted from an international research facility to an extremely large schoolhouse? Well, I've invited two decorated and now retired members of the parish Episcopal employee community to the From My Angle podcast to answer questions like these and share their recollections of the most dynamic years in our school's history. Kathy Pershurn's relationship with Parrish covers four decades as a Parish Day parent while her children, Becky and Scott, attended, parent volunteer, and eventually a trustee. Amidst it all, however, Kathy became Parrish's first true director of development. In that capacity, she was instrumental in formulating and executing the plan to raise the funds, nearly $20 million necessary to make the move to the Midway facility possible and to support the nascent Parish Episcopal program in its early years. A close confidant of head of school, Gloria Snyder, Kathy had her finger on the pulse of life at Parish as its grand reset unfolded. In 2021, the Midway Campus space, previously known as the Large Group Meeting Room, was renamed the Kathy Pershurn Fellowship Hall in recognition of Kathy's integral role in our community over so many decades. Dr. Frederick Coates was among those who brought Parrish's upper school program from vision to reality. Hired in 2002 as one of the five founding members of the upper school faculty, Frederick worked with his colleagues, the pioneering classes of Parrish high school students, and Dave Davies, the founding head of Upper School, to conceive of and implement many of the programs and practices with which we are familiar today, some to get decades later. Frederick served Parrish until his retirement in 2021, ever the pioneer. He founded Parrish's Academy of Global Studies in 2010, and the program's director's position now holds his name. 
We hope you enjoy this episode with two of the instrumental figures in the founding of Parish Episcopal School. Well, welcome back to the From My Angle podcast. Excited in this month of February for another in the Parish Connection episodes in this 50th anniversary year of our school. We've interspersed these throughout the theme of reconnect and reset to delve back in to the early days of Parish Day and Parish Episcopal, a remarkable five decades. And in the recent conversation, shifted our focus to the last two decades and perhaps the grandest reset of them all, certainly the grandest in the history of Parish Episcopal, that being the grade level and campus expansion of 2002. Having spent some time with board members at the governance level in our previous conversation, I really wanted to go under the roof in this episode and talk to a couple early employees about what must have been remarkably magical, exciting, daunting, intimidating, uh, all of it, days of the campus expansion. So, so excited to have the school's first development director, but so much more in nearly four decades of association with Parrish, um, Kathy Bershern, and also the one of the five founding faculty members, Dr. Frederick Coates, here to talk about these early days of Parish Episcopal. So, hi, friends. Thanks for joining us. Our pleasure. My pleasure. And so glad that so glad to have you. So, let's do this. We've started our Parish Connection episodes with effectively like origin stories. You know, like what brought the interviewee to Parish, and you all have these really interesting stories, right? Because Kathy, your origin story traces back nearly to the nearly to the beginning of Parish Day, while Frederick's root at the very beginning of Parish Episcopal. So, Kathy, your family came to Parish Day while it was the pre-K through six program uh, here on the Hillcrest campus, where I'm actually recording from today at the Fig, and then Frederick, of course, at Parish Episcopal. So, let's start with you, Kathy. Rewind us all the way back to your Parish origin story. Well, we had just moved to Dallas; had been here about a year, and we were members of Transfiguration, and uh, I was beginning to look at pre-K for our son, Scott, four years old, um, who's now on the board, but right. <laughs> hard, to, <laughs> hard to go back that far. But I was asking some friends, do you know of a good pre-K? And they said, well, there's a great one right on the corner of Hillcrest and Spring Valley. And I said, oh, well, that's where we go to church. So I actually went in, we interviewed with Mary Blair, the first head of school, so went through that, but she says, I have to tell you, Kathy, I'm retiring, so, and then our first actual year at the school was with Gloria Snyder, so. um, So That would have been 1979. Correct. Our first year at the school was 79 through 80. Right. And then... um, The next year, she asked me to chair the parents club then. It was the parents club. I did it along with another person, a co-chair. And my only qualifications for that was organizing the cakewalk for the Halloween carnival, which at that point was run by the church. And I guess I did such a tremendous job. She asked me to chair the parents uh, club. So... That was kind of my first go between. Then a couple of years after that, uh, she asked me to go on the board of trustees. And I did that. And about halfway through that, we learned Texas was no longer going to accredit private schools. 
So she asked me to organize and spearhead the accreditation. I said, I'm not an educator. And she says, no, but we need someone with organizational skills to move us forward. So a year into that, then she says, you know, I think we need a development office. And I said, what? You want, to, you want me to ask for money? She goes, no, it just takes your organizational skills. Not so, yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Right. So that's kind of how it all started. Yeah. And it was learning a database. I had an iMac. We had no computer programs, but... Um, you know, what Parrish has always had was a tremendous, dedicated group of parent volunteers. Unbelievably so, yeah. And Gloria had um, both an amazing eye for talent and an incredible knack at persuasion. So, oh, yes, like, she did. <laughs> like, these two things, as, she had an immense did. capacity among her many, many gifts, right? So she just <laughs> knew good people and she would literally figure out where to plug them in. She didn't really need uh, an idea as to where they would ultimately end up she just knew good people and she wanted and she attracted them and she wanted to to keep them so that's really your story just unfolded in one and one uh uh, opportunity need and responsibility uh, after another but of course your your coming to parish story reflects another element of parish day which i think we've really touched on with terry and father roper as we've gone back to the history of parish day that being its locus as a northwood hills a church of the transfiguration day school so yes. many of those families so so much rooted to this nexus of of the local community here at spring valley and hillcrest whereas opposed now parish episcopal of course serves 1150 students from some 85 zip codes across the the metroplex but you were not alone right as being a local who found the school right here at your church oh campus. no it was like a neighborhood school and right. it was our parent body was not one that had independent school experience. Right. Most of them had grown up in public school system, going to the neighborhood school. And so that's where most of us were from. We're coming and from. the whole idea of a development program was just, you know, it, it was foreign to most people. Yeah. And what? Yeah. <laughs> so we had a, a wonderful person, Tony Jackson and his wife, Jill, who had served on as on the trustees with me. And he, um, we went that first year of an annual fund to every single class, we had him have a class party, and we spoke about the annual fund. And most of them couldn't understand it went crazy, like, why, why, why? In one particular man um, just drilled us on the need for it, but we could answer his questions. And I thought, wow, wow, that was tough as we walked out. And um, he ended up being a thousand dollar donor, which was unbelievable to us at that point. Most definitely, yeah, that's a huge huge amount. And I think it laid the groundwork. That first year we had 80% participation and then went upwards between 95 and 100%. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. remarkable. And remember, uh, Gloria did you didn't know anything about independent schools, nor did Gloria, because she no. was coming out of 22 years in Richardson. So she had no uh, Richardson public school. So she had no real concept of the infrastructures of independent schools either. You were all learning effectively as you go, which is uh, an amazing, an amazing part of the story as well. Dr. Hotz, how about you? Uh, some, some uh, 30 years later, right? It's 2002. And, and, uh, 
and and they're looking to start a high school at Parrish. How did you how did you come to to know the school or find out about the school? Well, my first um, impressions of Parrish were through the first few conversations that I had with Dave Davies and the four founding uh, colleagues. Sammy Clay was our first English teacher and Richard Perrine, he taught physics. Marty Brush West was our French and Spanish teacher and her math teacher was Susan Mead. And I remember that it was on a, a Sunday afternoon before our first um, in-service week in August that the sixth of us uh, met. Gloria had arranged an afternoon uh, get together at the Royal <laughs> Oaks Country Club. And um, she and members of the board of trustees and the people from Transfiguration were in attendance and there was a very festive atmosphere as you can imagine. Everyone showed great enthusiasm and appreciation for being a part of such a, a rare opportunity as to start a new uh, high school, most especially us, the, the founding faculty of the upper school. And so um, I quickly understood that I was with a group of real professionals and that I could not really hope for a better opportunity. And I came away that afternoon really favorably impressed. There was great chemistry among not only the faculty, but also uh, the, the friends and the benefactors, the people who'd really been behind the sort of spearheading the, the idea of the upper school. Everyone seemed down to earth and sincere. And uh, I thought everyone would work well as a team together. Yeah, you all were kind of like superstars, I think, probably walking into that room. But you and all of them had come as well from public schools. Like, how did you even hear about the job opportunity at Parrish? Do you, do you remember, like, where you brushed across it and then chose to interview for it? Yeah, well, the, um, uh, the head of the lower school was Jackie Brinkman. And she was a longtime friend, uh, her and Tom. And... Uh, they went back to, she had started her career at ESD. Of course, Mercedes taught there for, you know, until she retired 41 years. And so she had told, um, told me about the upper school and told Gloria about myself. And so uh, it, that's the way that sort of evolved. That's remarkable. I didn't realize that your tether was to Jackie, to Jackie Brinkman. So mm -hmm. our former lower school had amazing and your wife, Mercedes, um, like you, uh, four decade plus educator uh, uh, in, in, uh, in schools, including independent schools. All right, so Kathy, about that time now, really in the year, couple years before that, uh, with Frederick arriving with his, with his colleagues, you all played, uh, you played a vital role in making the mobile facility possible. Um, this was a big effort. You just mentioned a thousand dollar annual fund being celebrated some two decades earlier and, and Parish Day was a, a quaint small church-based independent school. So <clears throat> a, a massive fundraising effort was not something that was uh, historical. You had, had a few six-figure gifts, a couple of some buildings were built here on the Hillcrest campus, but the, the breadth of what you needed to raise to move into the mobile facility, some $21 million or so, um, wow, significant. So tell us about the challenge of trying to raise that level of dollar for a school as small as Parish Day with no alumni base? Well, it was a challenge. And 
uh, the timing was, you know, we thought we were going to go out and build a school with one building here on open property. And then we found this building that would make everything happen a lot sooner rather than later. And when we heard that we had essentially three weeks to submit a bid for the property, and then um, it just, the board voted, we moved forward, found the property, and then 9-11. And I thought, okay, what happens now? What do we do? Well, the board voted overwhelmingly to continue to move forward. We knew we like I mentioned before, our parent body had little independent school background, weren't sure what to do, but we did have a number of fam a few families, never a number because we were scrambling. Um, I think I had mentioned to you in a conversation before, Dave, that we had one $500,000 gift for the gym at Snyder campus. The rest of the gifts were under 100,000 raise $1 million. So um, we had some people that uh, had been longtime supporters at the school, not in a big way, but we knew that we had to go to them first to see if that would even happen. And we took a former board chair over because he was one of the few people at the school that ever uh, spoke very bluntly and straightforwardly and he would tell us are you out of your minds or do this so he was overwhelmed in himself and as we got out of the car at the hillcrest campus he had picked us up to drive us over there he said well i think you should do it and put me down for a million dollars i truly almost fell out of the car because those numbers in my mind were way beyond anything i had ever but we knew we were going to need a lot more than the five million, or and that's more Al, than so that's Alan Meyer, whose name uh, is it fixed yes. to the head of school, the head of school's position. Uh, the Alan Meyer head of school now, for very understandable and obvious reasons, with that uh, audacity, and and then so putting some dollars where his words were in that instance, uh, and some other, as you referenced, some other families, the Hunts and others, came quickly to create a base for you. But yes. that base, that base really needed to be added on top of to to, mm -hmm. to make it happen. So at that point, you just had some. You mentioned parish volunteers. You just had an amazing infrastructure of parent volunteers who just went out and canvassed the the parish community. It was bootstraps. Well, and I think that long history of a supported annual fund and participation that gave us really good groundwork to build on, like yeah. in. The previous, Alan's previous gift had only been $25,000. Right. Ray and Nancy Hunt's previous gift had been 75000 Yep. Nowhere. So I think when people saw what was out there and what the potential of this building was and perceived the need and the kind of money that was going to be needed, they stepped up and made that difference. Yeah. And I had a couple of parents come to me who I had no idea they were from family wealth and they go, you need to talk to my dad and you need to ask him for at least a million dollars. And I'm going, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I think that happened with, but we were also battling some concern with the parents. Like if the school grows to this, are we going to be able to afford it? You know, there, there was a little bit of that concern too, but then we also knew that they wanted us 
a school to go forward. They loved Parish. They didn't particularly want to leave and um, had faith in the school. So, you know, we got a great uh, capital campaign committee that was committed. We met weekly, went out, talked to people, and a lot of those other gifts were much smaller than those first million dollar gifts, but they all added up. And then as new people came, they stepped up too. So, yeah. So like, it's a, it's a remarkable, it's a, it's a remarkable conference period. It's a remarkable amount of money even oh. today. And then but what people I think fail to, to, to treasure sometimes is that this building, this, the, the purchase of which was secured in December of, to the, uh, 2001, right, was for school to start over there in some form just eight months later, right? So like the sheer speed and velocity with which this was all occurring will always uh, make this move uh, and the transformation of this school so remarkable. And so classes were going to start in August of 2002 and you know, just that logistical challenge how did the team of employees prioritize and tackle even just the facility redesign? So once the sale was secured in, in December, like how did that process start? We've heard the infamous story of Gloria and her yellow pads and, and to-do lists that Frederick has, has, has spoken about in the past, <laughs> right? Like what, how, did that, how did that get started, Kathy? And then we'll kind of kick over to Frederick with uh, what he understood about how the upper school even came together. Well, it was um, it was a cadre of very committed employees and parents. I mm-hmm. mean, we had parents. It's like I you talked to Kevin Keith and yep. and Don Epperson, and it was people like that that were key. I mean, committees were established, and they were working, and we were meeting all the time. Oh, in the, right, right, and on all different levels. There, Laura Keith had a committee to go negotiate with Exxon and go toe-to-toe on that. We had a committee, Becky Crawford spearheaded a committee to formulate the program for a middle school and hire faculty and develop curriculum. We had engineers on the board, Raytheon people that um, he said, listen, someone needs to look to see whether we'll be able to afford to be in this building. He looked at all the, the air conditioning and all the infrastructure and And then we had other parents just uh, look at the upkeep, what it takes. And then one parent stepped up that who had a specialty and Don Epperson really worked well with him. He came to the school. I think Donnie had asked him to come look. His specialty was retrofitting buildings for another purpose. Mm. And so then he ended up bringing his daughter to the school and he was one of those people that could reconfigure things in the vision at, and was very much on a budget. He understood. It wasn't like someone just throwing money at you. Yeah. And that, so that oh. summer of 2002, I mean, you really had the seventh and eighth, you had the middle school start plugging in over at the new facility. Uh, yes. Well, they started in portable buildings yeah. on Hillcrest. So we had that next year to yeah. uh, really get, um, things organized. And, you know, we pulled the teachers in. I don't know. It was amazing because even I, I look back on that. I think, how did we do that? You know, it was a lot of sleepless nights. (laughs) Yeah. The number of committees that you referenced and the frequency with which they would have had to meet 
to get all of this materialized when Parish Day, by the way, still had to be operated. You know, it wasn't as if at that point point it was serving 400 students. It was a robust Mm -hmm. pre-K through six program. It it, it was uh, a big, a big, a big enough operation. Well, Um, and even to the admissions group, because we had people still, well, do we really want to step in and join this or do we want to take our kids somewhere else? And so poor Marcy was looking at marketing this school uh, for up middle and upper school. And then we cry over the students leaving. It was, it was very, it was very emotional too. Emotional and stressful. Marcy McLean, mm-hmm. uh, the first director of admissions, ultimate chief advancement officer. So Frederick, you arrived like you you and your team actually like drop in, you referenced the first meetings there, at Royal Oaks, like you drop in like August of 2003, like you're starting school within a month. So I suspect like those five or so rooms that you used on the third floor of, of the tower at the new facility were basically kind of ready for you to walk into. But were you all having to do a lot of like arranging and setting up and, and um, designing or was that pretty much ready for you when you got when you all got there? Well, we had the five uh, classrooms on the north side of the third floor. The rest of the building was an open uh, sort of office open plan facility. So it was had a kind of natural learning center type of feel to it. But um, the biggest question, I think, if I could go back for a moment to what Kathy was alluding to in terms of the difference between this remarkable facility that we had um, inherited or through a lot of hard work through the people who were sort of behind the scenes at the beginning, this IMP architectural masterpiece, there was still the question as to whether or not the classroom experience would be as uh, excellent as the school's architecture. And I always thought, I remember, I thought it was very insightful into the way in which Soria, uh, Gloria sort of approached this entire project was the answer that she gave to that question, if it was to be raised. And it was in three parts. The first was, yes, the building is magnificent. And the second part of the question, uh, the answer to the question was, uh, yes, this will be our first year for the high school. And then the answer sort of concludes, yes, the five teachers of the founding faculty possess 110 years of accumulative teaching experience. Yeah. So, um, very proud of that. <laughs> she, was, she, she modeled that. Um, but there then was for us, the faculty uh, sort of defined uh, a kind of two-sided situation that we were in. On the one hand, there was no doubt we knew our subject material. And uh, between the five of, us, I, five of us, we possessed seven master's degrees and a PhD. So intellectually, we were more than capable and ready and excited. And we knew that this pioneer year was going to be a thrilling opportunity. But then there is also the problem of experience itself. You know, Um, familiarity brings a kind of blindness. And we had no intention of uh, building this new high school on sort of the entrenched practices of our teaching experience. So we, we sort of had a mindset at the very beginning where we had to ask the question, uh, what does it mean to be a founder? And uh, 
what is a beginner's mindset? And this was a question that sort of went on through our discussions and conversations for the entire year. On the one hand, of course, everyone wanted uh, a future that was conducive to thoughtful, cooperative, compassionate, and creative students. But we, the faculty, also understood that we were only going to make small steps toward you know, realizing that lofty goal in the first year of our founding. And uh, we didn't want our knowledge of how things had been done to sort of curse us from the beginning. So we spent a lot of time after school talking about what it actually meant to be in the situation that we were in. And I remember that Dave Davies and famously sort of instituted his wine and cheese conversations uh, for the six of us. And during those conversations, um, many of the ideas that developed the first year were born. Actually, one of the great tools that we had for how to think about the parish student experience were the freshman student, the freshman class, the pioneers. They'd been parish students for eight years. And so they really understood, I think, better than any of us, what were the fundamentals of the parish experience. And um, we, uh, we had a great deal of faith in them uh, from the standpoint that they were embarking on this pioneer experience without really any promises other than the fact of everyone's goodwill and faith. And that said an awful lot to us. Uh, thirdly, I think, and was the building itself. I mean, we've talked about the building. How does anyone not do that? But we tried to draw some, um, some inspiration from that design. As I'd mentioned earlier, the sort of open floor plan and the flow of space. Um, and we pondered the idea of, uh, of this learning center idea. Uh, the Midway building was more modern than any building we'd ever taught in. And we wanted to transform that blank, that blank canvas into um, a real masterpiece classroom and upper school experience. And so um, I think when you sort of put everything together, our mindset was sort of, uh, you know, talk to the students, um, build synergies between assignments and uh, extracurricular activities, you know, li listen to the wisdom of Dave Davies and Gloria. We put our trust and we had complete trust in the leadership of the school. We could tell that they really were committed and understood exactly what their part in all of this was going to be. Yeah, so passionate. And I love that. I love that approach to architecture that you take, which is not even so much like how you architected the room, because that was kind of simple, like give us five classrooms. But you're talking about this architecture of a psychology. I love that question of, you know, what, oh, yeah. what does it mean to be a founder? And I and I honestly feel like we've continued to possess that two decades later. Like that's still a that's still a driving part of our identity. We, we refer to it as parish as a place of possibility. But the sense that, you know, we, we carry a founder's mentality. And I also love how you both have really illuminated for me the power of the facility in ways that I maybe didn't appreciate. Like I think. Kathy, as you described it, how it gave urgency and, and perhaps even, even um, uh, really enlisted support from a donor standpoint because of how fantastic it was and it accelerated the process of the move 
And then Frederick talking about even programmatically how it instructed some of the philosophical approach to teaching and learning and program design um, is really, really, I think, a vital piece of this conversation to capture. But Kathy, I'm interested in this notion of psychology. You referenced how you and Marcy, how much emotion there was in uh, you know, attracting families to the, to the new product and then also retaining them and you'd lose them. But I've, I've been wondering about the employee. You know, you all were such a close-knit family here at Parish Day, worked here on this 10-acre campus, the building's so close together. This is such a familial um, place uh, on this campus here at, at Hillcrest. So as this move begins to pick up some speed here, how did, how did, how did you and Gloria and the other campus leaders tr try to um, assuage the anxieties and emotions of the faculty and staff so busy as we've already talked about consumed by this move how, how did you try to keep the community unified and and assuage these notions of essentially the family being broken up, apart and sent to a different place well um you know that was always kind of, i don't know how gloria did it i mean as far as because she that was kind of at the forefront forefront of her mind too. Not as much as, as hiring the founding faculty. I mean, she knew they had to go there, but also she was worried about our family nature at the school and maintaining that camaraderie. And the thing I think she did the best, it was, we, it took even more time, but we, communication was the key. She kept everybody apprised of what was going on, and she made uh, a lot of us stay in contact with the people and reassure mm -hmm. the, the faculty that was staying, whoops, uh, staying at, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, sorry. Um, she wanted to make sure that people kept in touch with the faculty that was staying on that campus. We organized mixers at both places. Mm. We had uh, committees that were made up, the, any committee was made up of faculty that was staying at Hillcrest in addition to those at the other campus. And it was just, um, as we did everything else, I, I we kind of pulled people together in groups. She split her time evenly between mm -hmm. both campuses. Marcy split her time evenly between both campuses. I drifted back and forth. Mm -hmm. I, I opened carpool doors and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And it was just really communication and it was just yeah. constant and trying to keep that at the forefront of anything we were doing. Yeah. I mean, I guess at the, in the end of the day, you, you know, when you have a leader with the charisma that Gloria ha had, I mean, it ultimately comes back to that, right? Like somebody who just didn't have the facility in terms of her presence and her communication capability to just keep the plates spinning, both the human plates and the logistic plates spinning. Like the move doesn't, it just doesn't happen, right? Like it, it, it it's not possible without that. And so I suspect a lot of that um, on the human side just comes back to her power of of presence and charisma and persuasion. And then that amazing team of you all that you, you and Marcy and the others that she had around her to, to, to pull it off. Cause I, I'm sure it was emotional and scary, you know, uh, for colleagues that have worked together for six, eight, 10 years to all of a sudden be thinking about, um, 
who's going to be where she's going to work over there now. He's not going to be here. Um, you know, it was a human, a human experience, right? Right. And I can't tell you how many times I pulled into the Hillcrest parking lot on my way to Midway, right. just yeah. out of habit, like, oh, I'm not driving to the anymore. wrong place. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty good at not doing that anymore. But I can imagine those first days, it was really daunting. So just, by the fall of 2003, this this program is getting going. Frederick and his team have just, uh, you know, work with Dave Davies, the founding um, head of upper school. And with Gloria, they get this upper school program running and off and away it, it goes. You know, when you think about that fall of 2003 uh, and really essentially the, the journey to become a pre-K through 12 program, what are what are some of your most vivid memories, uh, Frederick, from that first year in the history of the high school? Well, I, I think if you want to talk about sort of vivid memories, the first thing we have to do, and uh, so I sort of uh, align my thinking here with what Kathy has talked about as well, is that we've got to sort of remember the vivid memories we have of Parish present today, because they weren't the same school. You just throw them out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. It's very different. Yeah. Um, you're still overwhelmed by the facility. That's that's still the case. But, you know, there's this multitude of student opportunities that Parish has today. I mean, clubs, organizations, signature programs, prospects for student leadership, you know, university level like athletic fields, gymnasiums, a world class arts and performance facility, which no one even dreamed of, you know, would be possible. <laughs> Labs, learning centers and so on. So. At the very beginning, we have to remember that um, all of those tremendous assets that Parish has today and take for granted did not exist. I don't mean uh, just one or two didn't exist. I mean, you know, none of them did. So what I remember most about that history is, as we sort of alluded to earlier, that our intellectual life was really confined to the five classrooms on the north side of the third floor. There was a corner office for the head of the upper school, Dave Davies, and there was a kind of small accessible area off to the side of it for the upper school assistant, Cindy Jackson. And that the center of social life for the pioneer freshman was the third floor commons area, uh, just adjacent to the elevators with a kind of an assemblage of some very tired looking furniture. <laughs> complimented for the most part by an absence of clubs and organizations. The centerpiece of that year was our um, homecoming, homecoming, which was uh, included an intramural basketball game between the freshman class and followed by a pizza party. So um, it's amazing. It was, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's astonishing. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the basketball uh, volleyball, football, baseball teams never had any home court or field advantage. Uh, the scope of our beginning was exactly what the word pioneer means. I mean, it was a kind of log cabin on the prairie uh, pioneer experience. And, uh, you know, but what I also remember about that first year was incredible attitude and goodwill, not only shown by everyone, parents and uh, the, the board of trustees and every the, everyone, but also the pioneer class. 
Yeah, class of 2007, shout out. Just amazing people, right? That they mm -hmm. that they went through this with um with just an attitude of of uh, endeavorment, endeavoring and 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 possibility and never never whining, right? Like they just no, they never they never had any homesickness <laughs> or the yeah. traditional uh, high school experience that I ever saw. Yeah. I mean, they, they just seem, they seem to, I, I'm sure there were moments where they were missing and remiss for things, but they generally were, you know, were, were as excited about the creation of this um, new entity as the adults, as the adults were. Kathy, what do you remember from that first year? Oh, <laughs> it, it <laughs> I just remember I was afraid to answer the phone because a lot of people didn't want to ask Glory about anything. They would call me, oh, would you talk to Gloria to see? Well, and everybody wanted an immediate. They wanted a lacrosse team. They wanted a swimming team. They okay. wanted everything. And I said, you have to give us time. We're working towards that. But it was just. Wow. Yeah. It was, there were a lot of road bumps, but overall, those kids, those parents in those first years were uh, and we were bending over backwards to give them a true high school experience, even though they were the first class. There was nobody on top of them, juniors and seniors, showing them the way. And um, and the longer we were there, the fewer phone calls we got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in true pair of spirit, by the time they graduated in 2007, a, a resemblant architecture of a present high school had already been formed. I mean, there was at that point a nascent football program, for example, and arts programming beginning to spring up and things of that nature. I think Frederick, you told me the first uh, first play performance was done in what is the present day chapel, right? That's right. Yeah. Oh mm -hmm. yes. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. the black box, old black box, not the present DB two, the in in the noble, the the old black box uh, was not even ready to be mm -mm. a performing space, right? Um, yeah, so you guys are just putting it together, but in those first four years, things did materialize. And to Frederick's point about the third floor and its five classrooms and, and the present commons that's uh, there adjacent to the elevators, you know, in those earliest days, the fourth floor, there were Was thoughts it? that it might go back to the Episcopal diocese. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was that the initial was, thought. Right, that it would never be utilized for classes, like there would not be demand that necessitated its use for classrooms, correct, Kathy? That is absolutely correct. They came, they looked, and then all of a sudden Gloria said, you know, this may not work. We need to make, keep this space. And there was another school that was interested in leasing the far end of the Great Hall. And as programs developed and students began to come, we realized uh, we're not, we can't give up any of this stuff. We will have to bite the bullet now and just move forward. So, and wrap it up, like the um, somewhat overlooked element of this year's 50th anniversary is that we've got this 50-20 phenomenon going on, right? So it's 50 years of Parish Day that's being commemorated from our 1972 founding in, in this, the year 2022, but it is also essentially a 20-year anniversary for Parish Episcopal, whose, whose origin story relates back to, to 2002. So I'm wondering, given how pivotal a role each of you have played in what Parish Episcopal has become, how, how, you, how you capture this 
this uh, community, th this sense of audacity, this sense of possibility, this 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 dynamic transformation. Like, how how do you encapsulate all this in words? It or is it not possible for you to do, Kathy? How how do you capture this? Uh, well, it's it's simple. I don't know that there's any other school that has done what we've done. And I would agree. In that yeah. 20 years. Right. And I've been asked that question a few times. And I would say, you know, we had a wonderful elementary school that was focused on not just the high, uh, highest ability students, but also middle students that were capable of achieving. Mm -hmm. We wanted to provide that for them in a well-rounded experience. Mm -hmm. And I think we've done that also in the upper school, especially what you've done today mm -hmm. and brought us where we are. But I think overall, we were blessed with wonderful families, wonderful students, but especially by people being in the right place at the right time. We've right. had what you have done, Dave, and in, in your tenure at the school has only enhanced what Mary Blair did, what Gloria mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. And We've been blessed by that. And mm. also the board of trustees that we had the right trustee chair in place mm. at the right time, the right uh, priest or rector at the transfiguration at the right time. So many things came together that it's like divine intervention, in my opinion, that it was just people were there that needed to be there when we needed them. Yeah, that, that word came up. I mean, in the conversation with Kevin and, and Don Epperson, and I think Kevin, you know, spoke to it being essentially miraculous. Like for those that are not of, uh, of attachment to their faith, they may have to find something else. <laughs> but I mean, I know, I know like where I live now in the history of this place and looking back at it so fondly um, because of its natural connection to my own spirit of endeavoring and audacity, like, it is what attracted me here um, initially that um, I can only see the, the the pieces of this puzzle fitting together the way they did as having some sort of divine hand over it. Like it is just too multifarious and, yeah. and, and right and and too and and too and too complex for there to be anything other than it being guided by a higher a higher a higher hand and a higher call. Ultimately, was that this school continued to do amazing work. Uh, raising, you know, young people to be the leaders of impact that we talk about. Um, Frederick, uh, always the historian and philosopher. I, I know <laughs> that you probably have words uh, for this um, transformation at Parish and the reset that became Parish Episcopal. Like, how do you, how do you sum it up? Well, I, I would try to go back to the very beginning because this is really what we've been talking about. And I remember in that founding year, I not only taught history, but I also in a sort of informal way served as the assistant upper school chaplain. I love that. <laughs> yeah. um, our Frederick. Yeah. The, uh, um, our chaplain was a, he was a wonderfully elderly priest and semi-retired, but sometimes he was unable to attend. So I always kept a homily ready in those occasions. And I remember one of those, I asked the pioneer class to think carefully about the kind of story we were going to write during our pioneer year experience. And by asking them to reflect on 
what we really say when we state the words parish Episcopal school. Mm -hmm. And so I took them through the etymological roots of each one of the words. And so I started with parish and I reminded them that it's a French word and it's traceable to the 15th century into that world of castles and cathedrals. And when it's said, it's, we're really literally translating it into English, we say a God-centered community. Mm. And then I went on to Episcopal and again, it's a Greek derivation, a word of importance to the early Christian church in the second century and associates with the process of, elect, of electing bishops and translates uh, sort of to the, uh, the phrase of those who seek the truth. Mm -hmm. And then finally, school is a very old word, word it's of, of Greek origin again, but much older and traceable to Plato's Academy, and it means leisure time. Doesn't mean entertainment or amusement, but a kind of time that's given uh, to thinking about wondrous things, mm. spectacular ideas, mm -hmm. much like the three founding tenets of our school, uh, honor, wisdom, and service. Mm -hmm. And so I told them when we put these, put this together, when we say parish Episcopal schools, what we're actually saying is a God-centered community mm -hmm. in the search for the truth in its leisure time. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to be a way to start the process of thinking about how to put the parish story into words, that it was important for those pioneer kids to remember that the parish journey combines with the student experience of wonderment and mm. the student acquaintance with spectacular ideas. And so now 20 years later, what would I add to that sort of original uh, mm. founding homily? And I think that, um, you know, the 20 year story of the parish high school has been a complex and a holistic search for the truth mm. about parishes identity and uh, what's unusual about it, uh, almost uncommon is the dynamic and swift character mm -hmm. of that journey. And that for someone like myself, you sort of witnessed it, you know, that 20 year journey part of it, at least on day to day, year to year. Mm -hmm. uh, I really don't think, although historians should not uh, delve into uh, prophesizing about the future, but <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that I'm overstating the point by saying that Parrish accomplished uh, the progress of a century. Mm. in those first two decades. I mean, think about it just for a moment as to what was accomplished. In two decades, Parrish taught and graduated 1,800 students, roughly, sent them to great universities, while at the same time transformed a research building into a learning center, built world-class facilities for athletics, arts, and performance, instituted uniquely Parish-styled high school signature programs. They include both an institute and an academy mm -hmm. and uh, cemented the foundation of its creation by phenomenal growth and is always directed to becoming something more than it was. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that those words of the story describe this community 
of an ongoing process of creation and invention. Uh, and I really think it would be difficult to imagine any other 20 year period mm -hmm. coming forward that will ever be anything like those first two decades of Parrish's history. Right. I think it's probably fair to give grace to those that come after us as stewards in our particular time to like give them grace that uh, that it, it, it is exponential in the way that you described it, Frederick, and probably not realistic to sustain it. However, only code I would put on that is that, you know, I hope future stewards possess that mindset that you spoke about, Frederick, and again, just illuminated this this mindset of possibility of forward progress of of consistent and constant aspiring to evolve um, because I do think that characterizes Parrish vis-a-vis -vis some of its peer schools in the independent school industry. I think it does characterize Parrish as much today, some 20 years after this, you know, incredible endeavor was undertaken. I still think it, I still think it works here. Like it hasn't got, we haven't gotten tired and I hope the institution um, in mindset never, never gets tired. Um, and just listening to y'all, I think, I think we all feel the same way. Like how lucky was I, <laughs> right? Like how lucky was I to get to be a part of it? You know, it's like, how cool is it? It was a great honor. Like it's been just a great honor to affiliate with so many amazing people who executed that grand vision that Frederick, I think so eloquently captured. So I was like, man, I'm a lucky fella. I mean, I hope other people have as much for good fortune as we did to stumble professionally onto a place, you know, like this. So that's how, that's kind of how I feel about it. Well, and to see what our graduates have done, I am continued to be amazed at the bits you see in the alumni news that right. kids that have come from, not from the big elite schools that have a name, but they are doing as much, if not more than their graduates. Just, I'm so proud of the school and, and my small part in it. You know, Yeah, you know, we had a couple dozen on campus last week. Uh, se several from uh, near and around the founding classes. And this is what I will say about our graduates, like devoid of accomplishment, which to your point, Kathy, are impressive. These are people that you like being in company. Yes, right? good like, people. So, correct. <laughs> so at the end of the day, like who they have become as people is is so impressive uh, be, because, of, because of their of their authenticity, their sense of comfort with whom they are, regardless of station in life or calling. And, and that creates comfort for you affiliating with them. And as our alums become older and, and I think more grounded in that way, that sense of uh, that, that sense of authenticity and lack of pretension, which is so affiliated with the institution, like that's what a lot of people say about Parrish externally who come in contact with us, I think is becoming evidenced and exemplified in the very people that are um, emanating from this place. And that's why I like hanging out with them. They're just really good people and they're, fun to, be, um, they're fun to be in company with. So um, uh, I think that is uh, a great thing to look forward to while not prognosticating the future in front of Frederick, like just to see where our still young graduates who are just now 31, 32 years old, our first class of kids, we have young alums, just to see how they put their imprint on the on the future and whatever role Parrish played in helping them to do so uh, will be a great a great gift and I think um, uh, evidence of of why this expansion was worthy of undertaking as much work as it uh, as it required from all of you. So it's been fun hanging out. Thanks for dropping this recording with us and uh, allowing us to. 
to hold on to this history and put it in the archives and uh, for, for people in the future to go back to and understand, you know, what lies at the DNA of, of this organization we also cherish so much. So it's been fun hanging out with y'all. Well, thanks, Dave. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good to see you. Hey, take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, we will return to the topic of what, if any, resets we might see in the world of college admissions. Having heard the perspective from Sarah Kramer on Parrish's college counseling side, we will shift our lens in our upcoming episode to the admissions office at a popular destination for Parrish students. TCU. Texas Christian University's Dean of Admission and Parish Parent Heath Einstein will join us to illuminate changes he has witnessed in the world of college admissions post-pandemic and tell us which ones he thinks might be with us for a while. Until then, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of From My Angle Podcast.